I can't believe it, Lisa. More snow on the east side. When is it going to stop? I was not predicted. I had to go out this morning and clear. You'll be out later clearing. Enough of this. It is a month, though, since the shortest day of the year. The days are getting longer. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and a plain dealer for a Friday. Long week for a, for a day where we had a holiday. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. I'm sure you're all feeling happy Friday. Happy sure. Friday. And isn't it great with the snow? Everything's brighter. Like it doesn't feel so dull. And then I feel like the light just bounces all over the place. Well, that's such a last half, half right. full perspective <laughs> on it. And to cover up the dirty degrees. snow. <laughs> it's going to be six degrees today, Laura. How can you have that kind of optimism? You'll be out on the ski slopes, even if it's six degrees. That's right. All right. We got some stuff to talk about. What do we know about the Intel plant that's coming to Ohio? The story that Andrew Tobias broke two weeks ago and the rest of the media are only just now following up on because the governor's office is feeding it to them. Laura? I was going to say, we know a whole lot more than the news release that the governor put out yesterday that was like, big news, historic economic development announcement Friday at 2.30 with Mike DeWine, Governor, Lieutenant Governor John Houston, and officials from Jobs Ohio, which is the state's private economic development arms. They are making this big announcement in Newark today at 2.30 p.m. Newark's the county seat of Licking County, where the plant is expected to be built on thousands and thousands of acres that is going to be part of New Albany. And obviously, we're talking about in We've reported that. And this project's going to cost about $20 billion and employ 3,000 workers and with support jobs for an additional 17,000 people in fields like construction, engineering, entertainment, and everything around it. It could con- change the entire state, really. This is the biggest economic development project in state history. Of course, Mike DeWine has not told us that directly. He decided to feed it to the up-and-coming magazine, Time. Yeah. So a couple things before I get into that. So we used to have a Metro editor here named June Dubail, who when he really wanted to make fun of something being in the middle of nowhere, he would he would make jokes about Licking County. Before this plant is built and it brings international attention, they should change the name, right? Because it's just a, one of the worst names for a county I've ever heard. Uh, Mike DeWine did uh, provide all the details to Time Magazine. One of our colleagues noted, why not Wired? Why not something hip? Why something that people be reading in their dentist chairs six months from now, which I thought was a good line. And he did do a huge sit down with the Columbus Dispatch, feeding them the story. Although there's no questions in that story about what the state gave away. So that's what happens when you're fed the story by the governor. We, of course, did not make any deals with the governor. Andrew Tobias, and a very good reporter in our Statehouse Bureau, went and got the story on his own and let the state know it was coming two weeks ago. Uh, I do want to talk about one issue on this, and I, and I hope it is not viewed as sour grapes. This is a big deal for Ohio. It's great news that the governor and the lieutenant governor won this. But they're breaking the records law with us. You know, Andrew Tobias heard there was a letter that Intel had delivered to the governor weeks ago, filed a records request for it, asked the governor directly about it when he visited with us recently, got the runaround, and then the governor gave the letter to the dispatch in Time magazine. You can't do that with the records law. (laughs) The records law doesn't allow you to pick and choose who you give things to. It's supposed to be available on demand. So the governor is taking what is a good news story and turning it from our perspective into a bit of a bad news story because he's violating the law. Layla, we've we've been offered our, our own exclusives on some other things of late and we've turned it down. 
because we we don't want to make those kind of deals. They never pay off. We'd rather have our independence. What do you think about what happened here? Yeah, I mean, I agree. We we we've been doing that. We've been fighting that fight on the the local level here. Um, you know, with with City Hall with the new Bib administration, and and uh, yeah, I agree with you, Chris. Our our our. It, it always backfires. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not to say, I mean, we've done it. We've all done it. We've done it a bunch of times in the past. But over the past year or so, past year and a half, when this comes up, it's like, no, just give us what you owe us. We don't want any special treatment. We'll get it in real time. I mean, some of the local nonprofits in town, desperate for coverage, call you to offer you a deal. Because if you make the deal, you're going to write the story, even if it's not newsworthy. <laughs> right. I I feel like we don't want to be beholden to anyone. We don't want to be restricted on what we can publish, and we don't want to owe anybody anything. I am surprised that that the Dispatch, which for years had had a very solid reputation, did the enormous story that's on their site today. It's all very pretty, lots of pictures, and, you know, rah, rah, the governor had this great Christmas surprise. And they talk about how Intel was tough on negotiations, but they never say what what the state is giving away to get it. They don't even say that the governor wouldn't tell them what the state is giving away to get it. It's not like, it's as if they didn't even ask. Andrew Tobias today will be asking those questions. What is Ohio on the hook for to get this? It's, it's, it's a good investment. It's, you know, we're, it's not to say that investment is bad, but you've got to be transparent. Lisa, we were talking before the podcast about the Peloton plant, which was the mm -hmm. previous big news for Ohio. The state, made a deal to bring that here. Peloton has been in the, the news this week because its stock price is plummeting and demand for its bikes has gone down. I don't, I don't believe that has any ill effect on this plant. They're going to continue to sell bikes and treadmills and things. Then they need a U.S. factory. But it gets back to what did we give away to get that? And will they come back now and demand more? Anybody? I'm sorry. Are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard I, to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, what happens is when you get these big, you know, economic drivers, they usually want a tax abatement or some sort of, you know, so you, if you don't offer that, you're not going to get the plant. So it's a question of how much you give away, not that you're giving something away. Yeah. Remember the Amazon when they were trying to build and we, we were trying to get the new Amazon. I don't even know what it was headquarters or whatever. Mm -hmm. And all of these States were competing and you just saw exactly how much people were willing to give away. Time magazine's reporting that officials have pledged about a billion dollars in infrastructure improvements, but that's just infrastructure improvements. We don't know what that means for, for taxes and tax abatements, but I, I, obviously, the thought is that it's going to be worth it because the average wor uh, worker at the new plant could make $135,000 a year. I don't know what the average salary is in Ohio, but I bet it's less than half that. Well, Way less than half of that. I, I, you say, obviously, it's worth it. But until the taxpayers of Ohio know what they're giving, we don't know it's that true. it's worth it. There's always a debate about whether it's worth it. It's like when they are redoing progressive field there the money and the abatements and all the stuff that goes into that. Is it worth it? Well, the taxpayers should get to decide. And as of right now, we just don't know what Houston and DeWine have given away. It's clearly a win for them. This is a big day for them. There'll be lots of celebrating, but we can't get away from our watchdog role about saying, what did we give away? And thank heavens we have Andrew Tobias. He'll be asking those questions. Rest assured it's today in Ohio. Tomorrow's the deadline. We think, we think 
for getting the work done on drawing non-gerrymandered legislative maps in Ohio. So what did the Ohio Redistricting Commission do during its Thursday meeting? Lisa, we, we originally thought the deadline was Monday. Then we believed the deadline was Saturday. I, I don't think anybody on the commission is quite sure when their deadline is, but it's coming up quickly. Yeah, it's either tomorrow or three days from now. But yeah, there's a question of apparently you can't have legal deadlines, you know, expire on a weekend. So if that's true, then it may be Monday. But nevertheless, everyone got together in public and and worked together. Amazingly enough, it wasn't the Cup Huffman show this time. Everybody got involved. Um, they did have a public meeting yesterday, and they exchanged proposed maps. The Democrat and the and the and the Republicans on the committee. There are no final decisions yet. But yesterday, they were, they were focusing on uh, counties and around Columbus and Cincinnati. Cincinnati, um, and their overall focus on, uh, is on areas that are likely for Democratic House or Senate seats. So that would be, in addition to Columbus and Cincinnati, also Toledo, Akron, and Cleveland, which kind of Democratic, you know, traditional Democrat. Uh, the rejected map that that got us to this place had 66% of the seats going to the GOP, whereas the current map that we have now has 67% going to the GOP. But yeah, it was very interesting to see them all work together, although there were a little few tensions here. Here and there. A Democratic consultant, uh, Chris Glassburn, who is working with the, the Democrats on, on the maps, had a little bit of tension with Senate President Matt Huffman. And Matt, because, you know, the GOP has their map makers, the Democrats have their map makers. And apparently there's a little bit of a question over the proportionality goal. Um, does the GOP agree that it should be proportionate? 54% Republican, 46% Democrat. Well, Bob Cup is like, I don't know. So we'll see. Yeah, but um, Bob Cup, I, I, I think Bob Cup and Matt Huffman barely figure into this now. I think the others want to be done with this. The Supreme Court told them what they need to do. They gave them the numbers. So Cup and Huffman can play their little games. The other five know that they don't want to stand before the justices of the Ohio Supreme Court and have failed to do what they were told to do. I, I mean, I'm not surprised Cup and Huffman are playing the petulant children, but they can be ignored. There's five votes without them. You know, they, they tried to corrupt. They did corrupt the entire system until the Supreme Court stopped them. And I, I just don't see them being the factor that they were in the first round. And they really need to sit down and be quiet, I think, because they basically hijacked this map making progress and even froze out their fellow Republicans, you know, Auditor Faber, Governor DeWine, you know. So, yeah, they just need to kind of take a pass, I think, this time. But there is an argument over the proportionality goal. Um, does the DOP? GOP agree to that? They're not saying, you know, so it used to be an argument over something else. And now it's over the proportionality thing. And actually, the plaintiffs in these lawsuits did submit their own maps as well. It has the GOP uh, getting 57 of 99 seats in the House and 18 of 33 in the Senate. So that would be 56 percent GOP total. So a lot of maps to look at but at least they're looking at them together and in the light of day. So I guess that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a big step in the right direction. We've got our fingers crossed that this is going to happen the way the Supreme Court ordered it to happen. It's today in Ohio. Let's stay on the topic. Ohio Supreme Court Justice Sharon Kennedy voted to preserve gerrymandering in Ohio. So how might that play out for her as she seeks the seat of Chief Justice in November? Layla, it's astounding 
that she wants to be the chief justice and she would she voted to preserve what clearly violates the will of the voters. Yeah, it is astounding. Laura Hancock had this great story analyzing analyzing this. She she reported that the most court observers say that Kennedy's support of the gerrymandered maps aren't likely to hurt her in November. Instead, it's probably going to be this new requirement that the general election ballots identify the candidate's political affiliation uh, in, in that race that's going to have the most impact. Catherine Turser of the Good Government Group Common Cause Ohio pointed out that, you know, Supreme Court cases are complicated and judgments don't always fall along party lines if justices are applying the law and state constitution appropriately. And she named former Justice Paul Pfeiffer as an example of, of one Republican whose decisions on the court were often counter to what you might expect from a Republican. And and Ohio Democrats plan to point all this out to voters, how, how both Kennedy and, and Justice Jennifer Bruner came down in the redistricting case. And, and Terser says she thinks that voters will be keen on that. But others, <laughs> others say that's that's uh, wishful thinking. Bill O'Neill, a Democrat and a former justice, said he believes that in Kennedy's case, it's just going to boil down to politics and that most voters are pretty disengaged from the actual work of the court or their key decisions that a candidate was involved in. Jonathan Enton, a law, a law and political science professor at Case, said he believes that any harm Kennedy might have done to her campaign by ignoring the will of the people in the gerrymandering cases will be undone almost completely by her party affiliation on the general election ballot. Others say, you know, usually the party that controls the White House doesn't do as well in this midterm election season as as the party that does not control the White House. And so, in other words, Republicans will be more motivated to vote this fall and they'll be more likely to cast a ballot for judge if they see that Republican Party affiliation stamped on the ballot. And, you know, for some voters, that's all they need to know. So, I mean, I, I that that sounds about right to me. Right. I mean, most people I, don't pay I, I attention think, to this stuff. I think that's really cynical, though. It is. I, I, I'm cynical. She, she <laughs> voted. She voted to slap the face of the voters, and you know it's our job and others' jobs to point that out. Look, I, I saw she's appearing with Jim Renacci at a campaign event, not Mike DeWine, the leader of the Republican Party, leader of the state, the incumbent governor. Jim Renacci, who's as fringe as can be, he sends us the wildest, crazy emails every day about his positions. I mean, he is, you know, worse than Josh Mandel. And she's appearing with him. I think that tells you everything you need to know about Sharon Kennedy. She's not a centrist. She's fringe. Well, let's go out and ask 20 people who are likely voters if they know how she came down on the gerrymandering well, issue. Well, more, more we'll know today because Laura Hancock wrote the story she wrote. So, you know, if we do our job, people will know. I think if people knew that somebody seeking to be chief justice was willing to throw out the will of 70% of Ohio voters to rig the system for one party, they might not vote for her. But maybe I'm being an optimist and you're the I was going to say, even yes. even I'm kind of seeing Layla's point here that I think a lot of Republicans will just see that R and think she's she's doing good work for the party. That's right. Or see the name Kennedy. <laughs> I mean, Kennedy. Oh, well, is... that is another good point. Mm -hmm. Kennedy. But that's the exact opposite of the spectrum. I got to I got to do something to lift your spirits, guys. It's just like we're three weeks into January and you're downers. It's today in Ohio. 
What's the new record for a settlement involving a death at the Cuyahoga County Jail during that run in 2018 when Armin Budish was neglecting the place and eight inmates died? Lisa, it's a big settlement yesterday. Yeah, it's the largest settlement to date since 2018 when that that rash of county jail deaths started happening. $1.1 million was awarded to the surviving family members of Sean Trawick. He was a 48-year-old man who was in uh, the county jail. He was serving six months for two misdemeanors, and he died in November 2020 after getting a beating from his cellmate during a shift change. And this was really a tragedy waiting to happen. I mean, Trawick was put into a cell with Edmund Hightower, who's six foot seven, 230 pounds. Trawick was a little bitty guy, five, eight and 140 pounds. Hightower had been sentenced to three years in a behavioral health center. He was jailed for attacking his mom's boyfriend, which is how he ended up in the county jail. And he was placed in gen pop or general population when he really should not have been. He should have been isolated because he had a long history of attacking cellmates and a long history of mental issues. So yeah, just a tragedy waiting to happen. This award is going to his, well, 590000 of this award is going to Trawick's wife, Dion Brooks. His two daughters get $50,000 apiece. The rest goes to attorney fees and other court costs. But yeah, uh, this is this is a big deal. I mean, you know, I think the county has paid out quite a bit of money over the years. I have that written down somewhere. Yeah, we've paid almost $3.5 million out to, uh, you know, jail inmates who were harmed you know, and there were 30 lawsuits filed over, you know, these conditions in the jail. So. Well, the, the total bill for the neglect at the jail is going to be 50, hundred million dollars for it's all said and done. That's all money that did not have to be squandered. I mean, that's, that's the legacy of Armin Budish. He has cost the taxpayers a lot of money because he did not fulfill his duties to be a steward of that jail. And the, and the bill just keeps rising. I don't know how many lawsuits remain out there. There's a bunch, but man, that's a lot of money to, to, to have to throw away from taxpayers. We're all getting our tax bills this week. We're all about to send in our cash. It's great to know this is how it's being used, right? Well, yeah, like you said, you know, and of course, this was during the time when they didn't have enough guards and they were locking down entire sections of the jail because they didn't have enough staff to oversee them. So that was just a recipe for bad things to happen. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What key step is the Ohio Democratic Party taking so that all Democratic candidates, not just those endorsed by the party, will have an easier time campaigning? Layla, this is a big deal because the, they always have tried to put their thumb on the scale for their favored candidates instead of letting the voters have the say. Now they're changing their approach. Yeah, and it, it actually makes a lot of sense, the reasoning that they gave for this. Seth Richardson reports that the party is granting access to some of its internal voter files to candidates who who aren't necessarily endorsed by county parties. Typically, you have to receive a county party endorsement to gain access to that file, which is called Vote Builder, which you know includes valuable voter file you know information um, that candidates can use to build more targeted campaigns. Matt Keyes, who's the spokesman for the Ohio Democratic Party, said that they're trying to make sure candidates across the state have the best technology to engage with Ohioans. And it really lets the party organize at a grassroots level and compete in every county in Ohio. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, the Democratic Party has been criticized for a long time 
for how it treats candidates who are considered, you know, outsiders, particularly those in the liberal wing of the party. Those candidates were often deprived of access to resources and, and would have to build their campaigns from scratch while the party endorsed candidates received benefits that that a lot of people viewed as backroom deals. Now all the candidates for office will generally be able to access that voter file, provided they're in good standing with their county party. That means no violations of, of any of the bylaws or doing anything that runs afoul of the party, like endorsing a Republican or criminal conduct. But candidates will still need to pay for that access. P- pricing will range depending on the office that the candidate is seeking. And the money collected from charging access to the voter file will be used to fund county party operations. But Seth says that they haven't figured out how to disperse that money yet. So really good news, a a really interesting turn of a a turn of a a policy here. Is there a chance this is just a way for the party to raise more money? Yeah, well, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, that could make sense. I don't really know what the pricing is for this. Um, But but don't you think strategically, if if the goal is to get more Democrats elected uh, throughout the state, you want to help them as much as possible. That's really the role of the Democratic Party. Right. I, I, I look the cynic I, the, now. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris. <laughs> no, I, I just ask. Look, I the, the Democratic Party, both county and state, has been heavy handed in trying to tell voters who to vote for. And the, the whole way they're I mean, there's they're they're voting next week on the county executives race. And there's been all sorts of shenanigans in the background Mm -hmm. for the party to pick the candidate rather than let it's an open primary with no incumbent. Let the voters decide. That's not the role of the party is to pick who wins. That's that's anti-democratic. So I think what they're doing is great. I think it gives a much better chance for the voters to get exposed to all the candidates rather than have the party leaders issue edicts from above about who they want in there. What they've been doing clearly has not led to any strength in the Democratic Party. It's the weakest it's ever been in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So it's good news. And maybe the county Democratic Party could take a page from this playbook and start trying to help all candidates instead of their favored few. Mm -hmm. It's today in Ohio. Like many businesses, KeyBank is looking at reducing its real estate costs. Does it have any plans to vacate Cleveland where it has its headquarters? Laura, it's a good story we had out of Sean yesterday. Yeah, a couple of good stories out of Sean and Key about Key Bank. And it is good news for Cleveland. Key Bank is not leaving downtown. They're staying right here, even though they won't need quite as much space across the country, but they're not planning to leave either Key Tower or the Higby building where they've expanded to or the Tiedemann campus out on 480. So the bank's doing pretty well, really well. They're talking record revenues for both the year and the fourth quarter, which beat analysts' expectations. They reported $7.3 billion in revenue up from 6.7 in 2020 and net income was $2.6 billion. That's about double what it was in 2020. So CEO Chris Gorman said on an investor call Thursday morning that there's been strong momentum in both consumer and commercial loans. And they're seeing growth among people under 30, including with their digital banking brand, which is called Laurel Road. That's something they bought recently. They had fewer bad loans, less bad credit, because a lot of consumers had more money from stimulus money. And right now they have $5 billion more in consumer deposits than pre-pandemic. So people are still pretty flush with cash, which is good news. So Sean actually got a couple of minutes to sit down with the key CEO. He said that 
KeyBank is embracing the work from home and hybrid work models that a lot of companies are, and they could shrink their non-branch footprint by about 25% nationwide in the future. But they're not leaving downtown. But they're not leaving downtown. So we're going to still see the key at the top of Key Tower. And uh, in December, we reported about 20% of the company's 17,000 employees work from home. Another 30% spend about three days a week in the office. I mean, I think that will continue to evolve as we as the pandemic downshifts. It's today in Ohio. All right, let's talk about a story that's not really news, but has been the topic of conversation all week. How did Justin Bibb do with the first major snowfall during his time as Cleveland mayor? Layla, we decided not to write about it because nothing dramatic happened. The, the plows got out. They largely followed the, the plan Frank Jackson had built and roads got cleared over time. You know what? So there might a win, a loss, uh, a tie? What did he I, do? I mean, it's interesting because there might be a bit of news out of this. In the last, uh, you know, in the last 24 hours, we've there's been a development. So, you know, we thought they did a pretty decent job. It was a lot of snow. You know, City Hall reporter Courtney Astolfi, she drove the city to kind of observe the conditions of the streets. And, and by mid-morning after the storm, it, it seemed the thoroughfares were passable, and as were many of the side streets on the, on the east side where she was driving. And when we asked Bibbs folks about whether they had the manpower and the equipment, they said yes. They said they were staffed up and they had all their plows deployed and they were reporting out their progress on social media when they hit, you know, 70 percent of street clearance and then 90 percent. School was canceled in Cleveland for a couple of days, uh, citing the road conditions. And so we asked about that, like, wait a minute, you said things were going well and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and the school was like, well, you know, it's big snowfall. So again, a lot of snow. The city appeared to City appeared to be receiving some complaints, but that's always the case. However, yesterday, you know, Justin Bibb put out a video on Twitter in which he said he recognizes that the response to the storm was inadequate, but that he inherited a broken system. And he said for too long, the city has failed to invest in delivering high quality basic services. And that's why he ran for mayor. So he said he's going to provide an update to the public next week after they conduct a preliminary review of this storm response and assess the system's needs. So that was a very, very counter to what they were telling us uh, on day one when, you know, we asked all these questions and they assured us that the, the you know, the, the fleet is out there. All the vehicles are operating. We have the manpower. We don't have a staffing shortage. So now we need to know what is the glitch in the system? What is the where is the break that he is referring to? Yeah. And I I'm not I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about yet. And we've we've invested way more time than I'd care to admit looking at snow removal right. over the years, because we know in other cities it's been the make or break for a mayor. And there are some basic rules of physics here. When 12 inches of thick snow falls, it takes a while to clear it. Right. You don't have the easiest places to push it. And so, you know, for years, the, the under Frank Jackson, they were doing a pretty poor job. He kept promising a, a well-developed plan to get the streets cleared. He came out with that while you covered City Hall, mm -hmm. Layla. Mm -hmm. And after that, for the last probably six years of administration, there weren't a whole lot of complaints about clearing the roads. If the snow really fell during rush hour, it clogged up the streets, but, but there was nothing they could do because there were so many cars on the road and you can't clear right. the roads when there are cars on the street. So in this case, it they said they followed the Frank Jackson plan where they clear the major thoroughfares right away right. and they appeared to. They do the kind of side arterials next. And then it's the, the residential streets, which 
is easy to do when it's three or four inches, but they're lined by parked cars often. Mm -hmm. And when it's a foot deep, there's nowhere to push the snow. It mm -hmm. takes a while to do it. We've talked to the people that do this over the years, over and over again, and you do have to concede physics are an issue. <laughs> so I'm surprised that he's saying it's a, I got a broken system from Frank Jackson because we really didn't have many complaints. And I'm wondering whether this is just impatience by people who, who don't, who want us to overcome physics faster. Right. And you know, I mean, with any big snowfall, there's going to be, there are going to be complaints. So if your snow, if your street was the one that got plowed, you're happy. <laughs> if you're the, if you're still waiting after a day, you're, you're very upset and you're calling the mayor's action line. And so I think this is the first time he's been inundated with a bunch of complaints about city services. And it's, it's probably pretty normal to experience that after a foot of snow gets dumped, but he is, uh, you know, he wants to react. He doesn't want to look like he's a, you know, unresponsive mayor. So yeah, we'll but see what he I, says next week, I guess. He says he's going to put out another statement after they take a look at their response. I know, but it's really early in the administration to be taking the cheap shot at the previous yeah, administration. Yeah. What, it's what Jane, Jane Campbell did this with Mike White when she came in. She did a press thing saying, you know, he claimed he left me $8 million surplus. It's not there. It doesn't exist. And we all went around doing the stories. And then Mike White finally came back and said, that's just not true. It's there. I showed her where it is, you know, and I really don't appreciate my name being dragged through the mud. It shouldn't be. And, I, you know, and I, it was a lesson because he was right. She was wrong. The money was there. So I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to buy this broken system thing because we've all been covering it the last six years right. and it seemed to work pretty well. I mean, it took forever to get the plan. I mean, it, it, you know, we complained and complained, but to come out now because he's getting mayor's action complaints and immediately throw his predecessor under the bus. Hmm. I'm not yeah. sure that that's a fair thing to do. I know. And, he, and he didn't really need to do this because we asked the questions it sounded and we drove the streets. We saw with our own eyes it seemed fine. We didn't even write a story about the no. inadequacy or anything. We, we we even, you know, when it looked like school was canceled for two days straight, we were like, huh, that's strange. But we asked the district what's, you know, and we also took into account that kids are walking to school and so sidewalks are an issue. It's a lot of snow. We, we were giving them a pass because we were like, yeah, you know, you did the best you could. And he made it a big deal. <laughs> he didn't have well, to. Yeah. Didn't look, have I to. just... And, and don't don't scapegoat. You know, if you want to come out and say, I, 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 I'm not as happy as I would like to be with how this went. So we're going to review it and we're going to try and make some improvements to make it better next time. OK, fine. But to throw the previous administration under the bus less than three weeks after you walk in seems a little bit cheesy to me. Mm. Yeah, I wonder You're about listening. his, you know, I was just going to say his communication manager should have nipped that in the bud if they knew yeah. what they were doing. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not a good thing to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That wraps up the week of news here at Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday to talk about some more news. Music.